Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Radio Westeros, episode 29. The Young Wolf. Spoilers all books. Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston. And I'm Yoke Boy in England. And today we're bringing you the first of two episodes on Rob Stark. Some of you may have been expecting a single episode on this character, but similar to what happened when we worked with another non-POV character, Peter Baelish... Once we had our outline and a great deal of writing was done, it became very clear to us that we had two episodes worth of analysis to share with you. Yeah, so we decided to split the Rob episode into two episodes, which makes sense because despite not having designated point of view chapters, Rob Stark is a major character in A Song of Ice and Fire. In fact, he's the most often mentioned character not to have their own point of view ahead of Stannis and Joffrey. And making our Rob analysis two episodes had the really positive effect of also allowing us to look more deeply at a few ideas and theories we might have had to skip or kind of rush through otherwise. So it's been really good for us. So starting with this episode, we'll explore Rob's youth and upbringing, his relationships with his family members, most of whom are major POV characters, and the very important theme of boy versus man that we see in Rob early on. And speaking of which, we'll also look at Rob as the Stark in Winterfell and how he came to be leading the Northern Army in his father's absence. We'll bring his march south and his arc right up to the moment when he is declared King in the North in his grandfather's hall at Riverrun, and then finally turn our attention to the history of the Kings in the North, the Starks, and Winterfell itself. Yeah, and in that final section, we're going to float a few ideas and crackpot theories that we really might not have had a chance to bring up elsewhere. And we're going to try to tie it all back together with Rob and the particular significance of him being declared King in the North at that moment in Westeros's history. Okay, and before we get started... We want to take a few moments to talk about our patrons who keep this ship sailing. This episode of Radio Westeros is powered by patrons. Look for Radio Westeros on Patreon to join with fellow listeners who have pledged to crowdfund this episode and future episodes. 
Yeah, you'll see that from $3 per episode, you can not only help us survive, but also claim benefits such as shout outs and early episode releases, depending on your pledge. And we now have a patron commissioned episode all about Varamir Sixkins called Abomination that's exclusively available to all patrons. It's 90 minutes of entertainment. We really like it a lot and it comes with all the usual bells and whistles of our production. So sign up to Patreon and you'll get to hear that episode immediately. And on the subject of patrons, since we called our banners, many of our listeners have come forward to help out, and we want to thank all of you and give special shout-outs to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, to our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and to our Palest Milk Glass patrons, Rosa, Rory, Ashley, Laura, Sister Winter, and Hare Krishna. Thanks a lot, guys. We salute you for your support and for your belief in us. And now, without any further ado... Let's get started with Rob Stark. No sword is strong until it's been tempered. The Stark boy is a child. No doubt he likes the sound of war horns well enough and the sight of his banners fluttering in the wind. But in the end, it comes down to butcher's work. I doubt he has the stomach for it. Okay, so Tywin Lannister's words about Rob there, hinting at a theme we'll be discussing in this episode as we consider Rob the boy versus Rob the young man. So Rob is 14 years of age when the story starts and is described as stocky, meant to convey a physical strength in the growing boy. As the eldest son of Catelyn Tully and Lord Eddard Stark of Winterfell, Warden of the North, Rob is the heir to the lordship and as such has been groomed for the position throughout his life. Yeah, and you only have to consider the Winterfell retinue that we know of to understand how Rob would have been influenced from day to day. There's Maester Lewin, Roderick Cassell, Master at Arms, his nephew Jory, Captain of the Guard, Veon Poole, the Steward, Hullen, Master of Horse, Micken, Smith and Armourer, and of course Rob's own father. Being around these men from day to day, all eager to teach the boy new skills and insights, would lay the foundations for the Lordling to one day become the Lord. And talking of Rob and Ned's relationship, given there's no Rob point of view, we have to consider him through the eyes of other people. Luckily, with Rob's parents and siblings, we get six point of views who together show us much of Rob's arc, and it's worth considering what Rob meant to these characters. So let's talk about him early on in the story, how he's set up as a character, and what he meant to those around him. So as his heir, Rob was obviously very important to Ned. As we said, Ned was shaping Rob for future leadership and manhood, as he tells Kat before his departure from Winterfell. Soon enough, he will be a man grown. He must learn to rule, and I will not be here for him. Although Ned clearly thought Rob truly being a man grown was some way in the future, for when Rob eventually calls the Northern Banners, Ned is aghast, calling his son a boy. But Ned's relationship with Rob 
which might be classified as a straightforward father-teacher-son type of relationship, actually gains some depth and complexity due to the existence of Jon Snow. Yeah, fast forward to A Dance with Dragons and we get a weirwood vision from Bran. It says... But then somehow he was back at Winterfell again, in the godswood, looking down upon his father. Lord Eddard seemed much younger this time. His hair was brown, with no hint of grey in it, his head bowed. Let them grow up close as brothers, with only love between them, he prayed, and let my lady wife find it in her heart to forgive. So we can see how central to Ned's relationship with Rob, John is here. Rob is described as having tully features, the red-brown hair and blue eyes, whereas John is described as being more Stark-like. Here's a thought from Catelyn. She might have overlooked a dozen bastards for Ned's sake, so long as they're out of sight. John was never out of sight, and as he grew, he looked more like Ned than any of the true-born sons she bore him. Somehow, that made it worse. And this is a pertinent issue in the Stark household, creating tensions between Catelyn and Ned, because it's impossible for either the reader or Catelyn to tell who's the oldest between Rob and John. They're described as of an age in the first chapter, and we've studied the timeline, and it seems to be a very close call indeed, with a slight edge to John actually being the elder. This feeds into a great fear of Catelyn's that a bastard could somehow stake a claim for Winterfell and create a succession struggle against her own true-born children. Given the history of the Blackfires, it's not exactly an irrational supposition. And in spite of an otherwise healthy marriage, this issue seems to have affected Cat. For despite Ned's best intentions, as witnessed in Bran's weirwood vision to raise the two boys as brothers, and both boys being in the same environment, there was still large differences in the treatment of Rob and John. George said Kat drew a strict line around her true-born children, and there's also a pertinent thought from John in A Game of Thrones here. Rob and Bran and Rickon were his father's sons, and he loved them still, yet John knew that he had never truly been one of them. Catelyn Stark had seen to that. So, John and Rob being raised together did cause headaches and some uncomfortable dynamics between Ned and Catelyn. But fortunately, the boys seemed respectful towards each other, with Ned's wishes for them to be as close as brothers seeming to have come true as far as was possible, and certainly John also absorbed many of the leadership lessons that he and Rob were given as boys, as we see in John's own leadership arc at the Wall. We'll talk more about John's relationship with Rob in a bit, but let's first look at dynamics between Rob and his other siblings, through whose eyes we see him, against the backdrop of the early story in A Game of Thrones. We first see Rob through his little brother Bran's eyes. It's the first chapter proper, and Bran has been permitted to watch the execution of Garrod as a rite of passage. It's here Ned tells Bran of his potential future. One day, Bran, you will be Rob's bannerman, holding a keep of your own for your brother and your king, and justice will fall to you. When that day comes, you must take no pleasure in the task, but neither must you look away. 
A ruler who hides behind paid executioners soon forgets what death is. So here's an example of how Ned is preparing his boys for their roles in life. Bran is Rob's bannerman in waiting, as Ned once was for his own elder brother. Altogether, Rob is quite jovial in this chapter, definitely more inclined to laugh here than later on in the story when he's a man grown, lord and king. We see the leader in Rob here as he first finds the direwolves and then leads the conversation to take the pups home. He's a reassuring presence to Bran, encouraging him to touch the pup when the boy hesitated. And Bran witnesses Rob seize control of the situation. It says, Put away your sword, Greyjoy, Rob said. For a moment, he sounded as commanding as their father, like the lord he would someday be. We will keep these pups. Rob is also seen to be proud of himself as he second-guesses a question from his father, and he's then described as stubborn in the debate over the pups' lives. So we see Rob to be good-natured and confident, a respected and assertive presence within the group, all qualities which will stand him in good stead for his leadership arc, and which may contribute to a tragic fall later on. We also see an early example of Rob's similarity to his father from Bran's POV. When the royal party arrives in Winterfell, Bran makes note of the Kingsguard who accompanied Robert. Specifically, Sir Jamie Lannister looked more like the knights in the stories, and he was of the Kingsguard too. But Rob said he had killed the old mad king and shouldn't count any more. This is nearly exactly the position Ned had taken on Jamie's crime, as we learn from various POVs later on in the story. Yeah, and as we go on, we'll see more and more of his father and Rob. So, all in all, Rob seems like a good brother to Bran, an admired role model, and someone to be looked up to. And now on to Arya. The first time we see Rob through Arya's eyes is at the Winterfell training ground, where the master-at-arms, Sir Roger Cassell, is overseeing some sword practice between the Starks and the Lannisters. Despite their swords being what Prince Joffrey calls play swords, there's nothing feigned about the growing animosity between Rob and the golden-haired prince. This scene has all the makings of a classic playground scrap, with Joffrey teasing Rob for childishness, Lannister toadies laughing along mockingly, and the tension boiling over as Rob sees red. The Stark heir was ultimately restrained, but not before launching a tirade of curses at Joffrey and his Lannister men. Yeah, it's an interesting scene, given that it's through Arya's eyes, who, being female, is obviously not permitted to join the practice yard, but will soon gain a sword of her own, and she'll learn how to use it. But the scene serves two very important functions. First of all, it really forces the audience to choose between the Starks and the Lannisters very early on in the story. And of course, George is laying the foundation for the Lannisters being the early story antagonists and even setting up the War of the Five Kings. And to give added depth to the tension between the two houses, we not only get trouble between the adult members of the houses, like Cersei and Ned, and between adults and children, like Jamie pushing Bran from the tower, but we also get the trouble between the children, starting with Joffrey and Rob in the practice yard here. 
So we can see why it's a smart move by George to have this petty playground squabble between the two adolescent heirs. It's another layer of inherent incompatibility between the Starks and Lannisters. And no doubt, witnessing this scene contributed to Arya's dislike of the Crown Prince. And obviously, Joffrey's immediately repugnant with his annoying and condescending remarks, such as, The hour of play is done. Leave the children to their frolics. And so the audience chooses Rob over Joffrey, Stark over Lannister, which is the black and white George was trying to convey at this point in the story. Joffrey's arrogant attitude soon reared its head again in the scene with Micah in the Riverlands, one that had devastating consequences for the Stark-Lannister relations, and for Arya, Sansa, and Lady specifically. Rob's youthful passion in battle against Lannisters helped to shape the War of the Five Kings, and both the conflict at Derry and the war itself can look to this training yard tussle as their precursor. Yes, they can. So we've mentioned what can be gleaned about Joffrey in this scene, but what about Rob? And this is the second reason that the scene is so important. Is the Rob we're seeing a mature boy or a young man? George definitely likes to toy with this notion. Like we see a very strong boy-to-man arc with Jon Snow, who later in the story is urged by Maester Aemon, kill the boy and let the man be born. And there's young Griff too, who's almost been sculpted to lead perfectly, yet can become quite immature when things aren't going his way. In all cases, Jon, young Griff and Rob... We have boys of a similar age that need to grow up very quickly in the story and become men in order to lead the Night's Watch, the Golden Company and the North respectively. They have a balance of raw youthful potential versus the capacity to make mistakes because of their immaturity. If you take gender out of the equation, you can even throw in Danny too, yet another leadership arc, and who knows, we might be seeing Sansa head that way as well. So overall, this grey area between adolescence and adulthood is something George seems to enjoy exploring, and we think he's rather good at it. Yes, we do. And in the training yard, we see Rob's youthful flaws, Despite the needling from Joffrey, it's actually Sander Clegane who really gets under Rob's skin when he says, I killed the man at twelve. You can be sure it was not with a blunt sword. And it says, Arya could see Rob bristle. His pride was wounded. Yes, so we see Rob's pride being too easily stirred. And despite the reader's annoyance with Joffrey, it's quite clear that when the prince finally triggers Rob's tirade, his reaction isn't appropriate for the son and heir of Ned Stark. He's two or three years older than Joffrey. We don't think it's by accident that both Joffrey and Sandor highlight and prod at Rob's age here. At this stage, his lashing out doesn't bode well for a boy, or is it a young man, who will soon be leading an army. 
We'll be following Rob's development as a leader today. And again, it's in the training yard being restrained by Theon that Rob's boy-to-man arc has a spotlight shone on it. Importantly, without the presence of his father in the scene. And this is all in Arya's point of view. So let's talk a little more about Arya and Rob and their dynamics. Arya certainly looks up to Rob, and there's a definite respect there. He's her big brother, and her admiration manifests itself in this kind of invincible big brother feeling she has for him. Soon after she arrives in King's Landing, she assures her father, I can be strong too. I can be as strong as Rob. And it's this feeling of Rob's strength that seems to be important to Arya. In A Clash of Kings, she tries to draw on lessons learned to aid her survival, and when it's strength she seeks, again it's Rob and the promise she made her father that she recalls. I'll be as strong as Rob. I said I would. So is Rob as strong as Arya thinks? Probably not. She does have some of that my big brother is invincible kind of mentality in evidence when she thinks that Rob would never let Winterfell fall, for instance. But despite Arya being somewhat biased in her assessment of Rob's strength, it's fair to say that neither was Rob's metal a figment of her imagination. He certainly had strength and leadership in him, as we'll explore today. So, Arya seemed to look up to Rob, perhaps thinking of him as nearly invincible, which adds another fine layer of tragedy to the Red Wedding. But you can't really discuss Arya and Rob without mentioning Arya and Jon. The latter pair have a very close relationship, and there's far more evidence of warmth and closeness between them. Of course, there's the giving of needle, highly symbolic, in a gesture of true affection between the siblings. And later on, when Arya has lost them all, she thinks... She yearned to see her mother again, and Rob, and Bran, and Rickon, but it was Jon Snow she thought of most. And an explanation in story of why those two are so bonded might be shaded into this early quote. They had always been close. Jon had their father's face, as she did. They were the only ones. Rob and Sansa and Bran, and even little Rickon, all took after the Tullys, with easy smiles and fire in their hair. When Arya had been little, she had been afraid. That meant that she was a bastard too. It had been John she had gone to in her fear, and John who had reassured her. So John and Arya both have the stark look, but Arya feared it meant she was a bastard like John. Perhaps Arya really felt like a bastard because she was unconventional, an outlier, and seemingly the very opposite of her conforming sister. Sansa was groomed to be a lady, and it made Arya feel like an outsider because she didn't fit that mold. In the same way, Rob had been groomed to be a lord, so you can see why Arya might not relate to him as much as Jon. Rob represented the same conventions Arya couldn't fit into, and on the periphery, there was Jon, also an outlier. So it's no surprise that those two bonded so well. No, it's not. And okay, on to the relationship between Sansa and Rob. As we mentioned, these two have had, in some way at least, very similar upbringings. Rob has been shaped to be a lord, Sansa a lady. And Sansa doesn't think about Rob very much early on in the story, yet there are no signs of anything negative in their relationship. 
Like Aya, Sansa misses Rob later in the story and seems proud of his strength. She thinks numerous times of Rob beating Joffrey and on one occasion gives the untimely boast that they say my brother Rob always goes where the fighting is thickest. And unlike Arya, she's undoubtedly closer to Rob than John. Here's an example from The Night of the Blackwater. She sang for mercy for the living and the dead alike, for Bran and Rickon and Rob, for her sister Arya and her bastard brother Jon Snow. Sansa judges Jon for his birth status, careful here and elsewhere, to remember him as her bastard brother, even in a time of foreboding and uncertainty, which of course functions well later on when George turns Sansa into a bastard herself. But her thoughts for Rob are always those of an admiring younger sister. Okay, and finally, there's Rob and John. As we've said, the most obvious difference between them is their mother, with Rob being trueborn and John supposedly being Ned's bastard. But there are more differences between them. Right off the bat, from Bran's POV, we learn he was of an age with Rob, but they did not look alike. John was slender, where Rob was muscular. Dark, where Rob was fair, graceful and quick, where his half-brother was strong and fast. And soon the pair have a polite disagreement about Garrod. The deserter died bravely, Rob said. He was big and broad and growing every day with his mother's colouring, the fair skin, red-brown hair, and blue eyes of the Tullys of Riverrun. He had courage, at least. No, Jon Snow said quietly, it was not courage. This one was dead of fear. You could see it in his eyes, Stark. However, despite being seemingly at odds, they are soon both revealed to be correct by the author when Bran asks Ned about it. Rob says the man died bravely, but John says that he was afraid. What do you think? his father asked. Bran thought about it. Can a man still be brave if he's afraid? That is the only time a man can be brave, his father told him. So we think the two differing opinions, both turning out to be correct, in a kind of yin and yang way, really underscores that despite their differences, John and Rob complement each other very well. Further evidence of this can be seen when they are trying to take the direwolf pups home. It's both Rob's confident stubbornness and John's more measured philosophizing about the correlating pup-to-stark ratio in combination which win over Eddard. Later on, John tries to flee the Night's Watch to be with Rob, and we're very glad he chose to stay, yet there's some sadness that Rob and John never really got to work together in a leadership capacity, as we think they would have made an outstanding pair. Yes, we definitely think they would have been complementary. And going back to their upbringing, while it's clear they had the same instruction, as we see in John's memories of sword training with Sir Roderick and lessons from Maester Lewin, it's also made clear that Catelyn Stark never let John forget his position. After Stannis offers him Winterfell in A Storm of Swords, we get this thought from John about what Catelyn's reaction would be. She was looking at him the way she used to look at him at Winterfell whenever he had bested Rob at swords or sums or most anything. Who are you? 
That look had always seemed to say, This is not your place. Why are you here? So while John felt the difference, perhaps even more when he excelled at something, it's to the credit of both parties that Rob didn't look down upon or have a rivalry with John, and that John held very little bitterness towards Rob, despite what must have been painful circumstances for the family bastard, with each boy acutely aware of the chasm between them. The only occasion there seems to have been any friction between the pair seems to hark back to Catelyn again. Here's a quote. That morning he called it first. I'm Lord of Winterfell, he cried, as he had a hundred times before. Only this time, this time, Rob had answered, You can't be Lord of Winterfell, you're bastard-born. My lady mother says you can't ever be the Lord of Winterfell. So it's certainly true that Catelyn made her feelings about John plain on more than one occasion. And John's memory of that comment by Rob appears to be a neat bit of foreshadowing, or given that it comes right at the end of A Storm of Swords, perhaps it's more of a clever nod at what had transpired in Rob's arc, unbeknownst to John. Yeah, and of course we're thinking of Rob's will there. But we also think that it's a testament to Rob and John's relationship as young adults, and perhaps part of Ned's legacy, that there's really not one negative thought or word between them in the text. And even as far as A Dance with Dragons, John is still remembering his farewell with his brother with sadness. Quote, the cold trickles on his face reminded John of the day he'd bid farewell to Rob at Winterfell, never knowing that it would be for the last time. So as we know, Rob's path is ultimately one of tragedy, but early on his stage is set as a young lord in the making. This groundwork is soon expanded and built upon as Ned leaves the north, with Rob now the Stark in Winterfell, despite Ned handing over the rule to Catelyn for the time being. Ned says to Cat, You must govern the north in my stead while I run Robert's errands. There must always be a Stark in Winterfell. Rob is 14. Soon enough, he will be a man grown. He must learn to rule, and I will not be here for him. Make him part of your councils. He must be ready when his time comes. And with all this set against the high tensions of Bran's fall, Rob's leadership journey gears up and his character will go on to be tested and have to adapt in ways the characters and the reader could not have imagined so early on. Throughout these two episodes, we'll be walking through the highs and lows of Rob's arc, probing the question of whether he was ready when his time came. And when we continue, we'll look at his time as the Stark in Winterfell from A Game of Thrones. The next time I see you, you'll be all in black. John forced himself to smile back. It was always my color. How long do you think it will be? Soon enough, Rob promised. He pulled John to him and embraced him fiercely. Farewell, Snow. John hugged him back. And you, Stark, take care of Bran. Okay, so that's the farewell between Rob and John there. So the next part of Rob's arc and personal growth we want to consider is the time in which the Stark heir goes from 
playground scraps to being the Stark in Winterfell. King Robert's visit and Bran discovering what Jaime would do for love bring about dramatic changes in Winterfell. Despite hints to certain familial tensions going on, there was something idyllic about the Starks and their surrounding. Most pertinently, there was Ned, who quickly gained favour with the reader as a calming, assured presence and a natural leader. Not just of family, but of subjects too. And in the first couple of John chapters, we see a young man who, like Ned, has been by Rob's side from the very beginning. But George removes both of these Winterfell linchpins almost in one fell swoop. When we see Rob saying his snowy goodbyes to John, his bastard brother having been tempted at the chance of honor in the Night's Watch by a visiting Benjen Stark, the backdrop is of Ned's wagons being loaded, Removing both Ned and John from the Winterfell chessboard in quick succession gives Rob the vital space he needs to grow and change as a character. Yeah, his leadership arc required a place in the story where he could grow into a convincing leader and quickly given what George would soon have in store for him. And stood there talking to John amidst the chaos of the departure of the King and the Northmen we see the first and immediate signs that Rob is about to grow into the void left by these departures of his brother and of his father. Here's a quote. Rob was in the middle of it, shouting commands with the best of them. He seemed to have grown of late, as if Bran's fall and his mother's collapse had somehow made him stronger. Grey Wind was at his side. So, Rob leading there and said to be growing both literally and as a character and with grey wind at his side, a hint at the future for those two. The farewell with John is quite heartwarming, especially with hindsight. Rob promises he'll see John soon enough, which they don't, and John suggests that you Starks are hard to kill, at which George must have been chuckling evilly to himself. This early sense that the Starks could reunite unscathed like a big happy family increases the effectiveness of the tragedies later on. The next time I see you, you'll be all in black, says a smiling Rob Stark. Yeah, and of course, one of the great tragedies is that they never do actually see each other again. And another factor contributing to a sort of power vacuum at Winterfell was Bran's fall and its direct effect on Rob's mother, Catelyn. As we mentioned earlier, Ned left Cat in charge of Winterfell, leaving instructions to help Rob become ready to rule. But these orders were given before Bran's fall, and since Catelyn has become incapacitated with her grief and worry. But in the first Cat chapter after the fall, we see how incapable she's become. She, first of all, refuses to look at the financial books and barely remembers that the household steward has gone south with Ned. Instead, she's fixated on Bran. And when Maester Lewin suggests Cat needs to manage the household by filling a number of vacant positions, like Master of Horse, Cat replies, My son lies here broken and dying, Lewin, and you wish to discuss a new Master of Horse? Do you think I care what happens in the stables? Do you think it matters to me one whit? 
I would gladly butcher every horse in Winterfell with my own hands if it would open Bran's eyes. Do you understand that? Do you? Yeah, there's a hint of Mother's Madness here, and having not left Bran's side since his fall, the reader soon appreciates that her mental state has left her in no position to rule Winterfell, or even keep step with the day-to-day basics. And just at the very moment this is sinking into the reader, Rob appears from nowhere and says, I'll make the appointments. So, Rob Stark steps in to fill the void, doing so with such conviction that Lewin doesn't seek Cat's approval for Rob's decision to talk on the morrow about the good men Lewin has suggested. With Ned and John gone, and with Cat unable, George can start to grow Rob into a leader, and as we've said, it was an essential shuffle by the author, and the maneuver is balanced to perfection. Yeah, Rob demonstrates that he is willing and able to take over the running of Winterfell, in spite of Ned's previous conviction that he might not be ready yet. When Rob and Cat find themselves alone, though, we're shown a persisting, youthful vulnerability in Rob. He asks hard questions about Cat's reclusive behaviour with Bran and reminds her that she has other responsibilities. Rickon needs you, Rob said sharply. He's only three. He doesn't understand what's happening. He thinks everyone has deserted him, so he follows me around all day, clutching my leg and crying. I don't know what to do with him. He paused a moment, chewing on his lower lip the way he'd done when he was little. Mother, I need you too. I'm trying, but I can't. I can't do it all by myself. His voice broke with sudden emotion, and Catelyn remembered that he was only 14. Okay, so this passage highlights two things. First, it's one of the few times we hear about Rob and Rickon, and we see an elder brother somewhat overwhelmed by the needs of a small child who's looking to him for love and guidance. After Cat's departure, Rickon would become even more attached to Rob. Bran later notes that whenever Rob was away, Rickon would cry and ask if Rob was ever coming back, So, to add to all of Rob's other complex burdens, he had the emotional well-being of his three-year-old brother, which may at times have seemed like the most complex burden of all. Yeah, when Rob inevitably leaves Winterfell, we see Rickon being, quote, wild as a winter storm and running away to hide in the crypts. Bran describes how Rickon had slashed at them with a rusted iron sword he'd snatched from a dead king's hand. And his shaggy dog was, quote, near as wild. Another hint at the mysterious emotional connection the Starks have with their wolves. In this case, it would be Rob and Grey Wind who had the power to subdue the youngest Stark and his wolf. And if Rickon became increasingly wild after Rob's departure, it could be no wonder. Okay, and getting back to Rob and Kat's exchange, the other thing that passage shows us is how Rob is able to be a leader when called upon, and a boy in private. It's an interesting way to view his character, which highlights Rob being on the very cusp of manhood, and also sets up the close-knit relationship we see with his mother going forward. Incidentally, in this passage, Kat notices a physical change in Rob. It says... Catelyn had always thought Rob looked like her. Like Bran and Rickon and Sansa, he had the tully colouring, the auburn hair, the blue eyes. 
Yet now, for the first time, she saw something of Eddard Stark in his face, something as stern and hard as the North. So, that's really interesting. Rob is looking more like Ned in these crucial moments for his development. This is a setup on different levels for Rob to take over Winterfell, for him to control the North, and for him to march an army south. Incidentally, all things his father did when the call arose, not to mention the parallels in their mutual demise. But perhaps another function of reminding us that Rob is his father's son is to make sure we simply really like Rob and that we root for him, as the vast majority of readers did for Ned. And seeing Rob behave like Ned, coupled with the shock of the Cat's Paws assassination attempt on Bran, brings Cat around somewhat, and very soon she's schooling Rob, as she had promised Ned she would. Why would anyone want to kill Bran, Rob said. Cods, he's only a little boy, helpless, sleeping. Catelyn gave her firstborn a challenging look. If you are to rule in the North, you must think these things through, Rob. Answer your own question. Why would anyone want to kill a sleeping child? From this point on, Rob is in a man's world. Armies, battles, ruling a kingdom. And yet he's left without the degree of male guidance you'd expect a young leader to have. Instead, he has Cat, and the dynamics between them are very interesting, not least because Cat herself is not accustomed to such a role. Although, perhaps critically, we're told that she did spend time as a child accompanying her father on his lordly duties. But these are the seeds of the advisory dynamics between the two, and we're being shown that he still needs the wisdom of his mother and critically that he must also start to think for himself. In this instance, Rob shows his worth and concludes that someone wanted to keep Bran quiet, hence the cat's paw. But when Cat reveals possible Lannister involvement to Rob, he reverts to immaturity, drawing his sword while shouting, leading to this response from Sir Roderick. Sir Roderick bristled at him. Put that away. The Lannisters are a hundred leagues away. Never draw your sword unless you mean to use it. How many times must I tell you, foolish boy? Abashed, Rob sheathed his sword. Suddenly, a child again. So that's a really great passage to mark this boy-to-man theme that we're talking about. And fittingly, Cat goes on to mention that a war might be coming. It's perhaps the first whiff of the War of the Five Kings, and Cat fully embraces the fact Rob is now carrying real steel rather than the wood of the training yard. And this is really a rite of passage, and perhaps Cat's way of showing Rob that she, at least, now regards him as a man. And it's worth mentioning that Theon Greyjoy is probably Rob's main confidant at this time. We didn't consider him as a sibling in the previous segment, but perhaps we should have, as he claims Lord Eddard is a second father to me, before swearing an oath of secrecy to Catelyn. We'll trace the breakdown of the relationship between Theon and Rob later, but for now, we can see the bond between the pair becoming more apparent in Jon's absence. 
So the clandestine meeting comes to an end when Rob characteristically volunteers to go to King's Landing and is refused by his mother, who takes yet another of his male role models, Sir Roderick, with her to the capital. Despite her own motherly concerns for Bran, Cat now begins to play a bigger game and leaves Rob behind as the Stark in Winterfell. This is a major decision, make no mistake, and so begins a series of Catch-22s that Cat finds herself in. The result of which is that she, and possibilities with Lady Stoneheart notwithstanding, never sets foot in Winterfell nor sees Bran and Rickon again. Yeah, and that really makes me so sad to think about right there. But now, with Cat gone, Rob is truly the lord and ruler of Winterfell. In a matter of weeks, he's gone from training yard scraps to being responsible for Winterfell and all its holdings, not to mention his two younger brothers. Soon, Bran awakens and provides the point of view through which we view Rob. Bran 4, the first chapter after the awakening, begins with Bran longing to be outside, running around, and he's on the verge of tears. It says, Bran knuckled away the tears before they could fall. His eighth name day had come and gone. He was almost a man grown now, too old to cry. Yeah, this moment is slightly referred to later on with Rob, so keep it in mind. But for now, note that it sets up this familiar boy-to-man theme for this chapter. And Bran isn't the only one with growing up to do. Bran provides insight into how Rob is changing. It says... Only Rob and baby Rickon were still here, and Rob was changed. He was Rob the Lord now, or trying to be. He wore a real sword and never smiled. His days were spent drilling the guard and practising his sword play, making the yard ring with the sound of steel as Bran watched forlornly from his window. At night he closeted himself with Maester Lewin, talking or going over account books. Sometimes he would ride out with Hallis Mollen and be gone for days at a time, visiting distant holdfasts. Whenever he was away more than a day, Rickon would cry and ask Bran if Rob was ever coming back. Even when he was home at Winterfell, Rob the Lord seemed to have more time for Hallis Mollen and Theon Greyjoy than he ever did for his brothers. So, as he once distinguished between Father and Lord Stark, Bran begins to see Rob as two different people, Rob his brother and Rob the Lord. His young age, naivete, and promising intelligence combine to make Bran a useful observer. And the takeaway here is that Rob is stepping up to his new responsibilities well. He's adapting and leading, although Bran's assertion that Rob is trying to be Lord Rob insinuates that he's not quite the finished package yet. But whereas Rob might be becoming a true lord, it's clear to Bran that it's coming at the cost of familial neglect sometimes. And this theme of Starks, namely Rob and Ned and Cat and even Jon Snow, having to choose between family and duty, grows throughout A Game of Thrones and beyond. Rob being described as two different people is also a favored technique employed by George when he wants to highlight change and internal schisms. We see it with characters such as Robert Baratheon, Jamie, Sansa, and Arya, for example. 
It makes the reader ponder the nature of identity and what makes a person who they are, which we identify as one of the principal themes and questions posed by this series. Yeah, that's something we do talk about a lot, I'm sure you've noticed. And anyway, later on in the chapter, we get to see Rob the Lord himself in action, and Bran continues to note his brother's new kind of alter ego. It says, Rob was seated in father's high seat, wearing ringmail and boiled leather, and the stern face of Rob the Lord. Theon Greyjoy and Hallis Mullen stood behind him. A dozen guardsmen lined the grey stone walls beneath tall narrow windows. In the centre of the room, the dwarf stood with his servants, and four strangers in the black of the night's watch. Bran could sense the anger in the hall the moment that Hodor carried him through the doors. So, Tyrion has arrived with the members of the Night's Watch, and Rob is looking like his father's son on the high seat. Remember that Rob is now deeply suspicious of Lannisters since the attack on Bran and his mother's revelations, and Tyrion bears the brunt of that in this scene, despite being innocent. Rob offers the Night's Watch the hospitalities of Winterfell, which is expected, but also an unspoken message to Tyrion that he's not welcome. Bran observes, Any man of the Night's Watch is welcome here at Winterfell for as long as he wishes to stay, Rob was saying with the voice of Rob the Lord. His sword was across his knees, the steel bare for all the world to see. Even Bran knew what it meant to greet a guest with an unsheathed sword. Okay, so to clarify what Bran means there and what is meant when you greet someone with bare steel... It seems that Rob is expressing to Tyrion that he will, at the very least, not receive guest right under his roof. We dug up an old fan correspondence with George in 2001, where he references this as an act of aggression. And we see it again later, when Rob receives the prisoner Cleos Frey at Riverrun, where Catelyn thinks the naked steel across her son's knees is a threat plain for all to see. And Tyrion, as sharp as he is, immediately understands the position he's in and begins the verbal sparring routine that he tries with almost everyone he meets, in this instance calling Rob boy and getting this response. Rob stood and pointed at the little man with his sword. I am the lord here while my mother and father are away, Lannister. I am not your boy. And when Bran's awakening is confirmed to Tyrion, the imp comments... You Starks are hard to kill, which, if you remember, was the exact same thing that John said to Rob earlier. George really wants us to buy into this invincible Stark idea, doesn't he? Anyway, Rob is genuinely perplexed at Tyrion's offer of help to Bran. Here Tyrion represents the enemy, but hasn't done any wrong himself. And so Rob's animosity is misplaced although the reader can understand where he's coming from. But things get worse for Tyrion when Rickon brings the direwolves into the hall, namely Summer's shaggy dog and Rob's own wolf, Grey Wind. There's previously been some hints at perhaps a supernatural connection between the Starks and their direwolves, notably Summer guarding the unconscious Bran in the incident with Arya and Nymeria at the Trident, 
And of course, George is slowly heading towards the introduction of warging. But in this scene, there are further hints that there is something curious going on. Here, all three direwolves snarl at Tyrion and show their aggression, with grey wind biting his sleeve, perhaps meant to closely mirror Nymeria's attack on Joffrey. The wolves are experiencing the anger, fear and resentment felt by Bran, Rickon and Rob. There's a strange connection, one which shocks Rob here. Incidentally, the direwolves are gradually introduced as mirrors to their owners. Grey Wind was growing quickly, it seems, even by direwolf standards. A big, lean, strong and fast direwolf who is sometimes impulsive and doesn't show much caution. Does that sound familiar? Anyway, Rob named him Grey Wind because of his speed. He's never really described in-game, but in Clash we do get this, admittedly after he has grown considerably more. It says, a direwolf as large as any elk hound, lean and smoke dark, with eyes like molten gold. And in this scene, he's fittingly being the most aggressive of the wolves towards Tyrion, even more so than the wild shaggy dog. With Lannister men reaching for their steel, we can see how direwolves don't really make for great diplomacy, reminding us of Ned's caution about housing the wolves and of other Lannister direwolf tensions. As the moment passes, Tyrion strikes a rather sympathetic figure, and Maester Lewin counsels Rob, who then changes his aggressive tone, showing that Rob is at least honorable enough to take heed of counsel and try to right wrongs. He finally sheathes his sword, offering Guestright and Winterfell's hospitalities. The friction is hardly eased, however, and before too long, we see similar dynamics in play again, when Rob's mother also confronts an innocent Tyrion. And we see further immaturity from Rob when ominous news reaches him about his missing uncle Benjen. This is what Rob says to Euron. My uncle is not dead, Rob Stark said loudly, anger in his tones. He rose from the bench and laid his hand on the hilt of his sword. Do you hear me? My uncle is not dead. His voice rang against the stone walls and Bran was suddenly afraid. So, a very strong reaction there from Rob, perhaps meant to plant a seed with the reader. And after Bran's earlier concerns that Rob was being less of a brother and more of the Lord, Rob actually ends up carrying Bran to bed that evening, whispering to him that he promises they'll find him a horse, a quite heart-wrenching moment as you realize Rob, all of a sudden, is Lord, brother, and also parent in Ned's and Cat's absence. Bran asks if their parents will ever come back, which is met with typical abundant optimism from Rob, who had had a similar attitude to both comatose Bran and missing Uncle Benjen. However, beneath this optimism, there is hidden fear in Rob. And as he tells Bran of a great adventure they'll one day have, Bran hears his brother crying. Here's the passage. Even in the dark room... Bran could feel his brother's smile. And afterwards, we'll ride north to see the wall. We won't even tell John we're coming. We'll just be there one day, you and me. It'll be an adventure. An adventure, Bran repeated wistfully. He heard his brother's sob. 
The room was so dark he could not see the tears on Rob's face, so he reached out and found his hand. Their fingers twined together. Okay, so this is the heartrending note this chapter ends on. And now, let's take you back to how it began. Bran was watching the playing outside and wanted to cry, and he thinks his eighth name day had come and gone. He was almost a man grown now, too old to cry. So this chapter begins with Bran, an eight-year-old and supposedly nearly a man grown, being too old to cry. And the chapter ends with Rob, the acting Lord of Winterfell, truly a man grown now, actually crying to Bran. This is a subtle detail, and we think an excellent commentary on Rob and his current dichotomy. Rob is evidently both a boy and a man grown, but with more responsibilities coming his way, he'll soon need to kill the boy and let the man be born. And Rob's promise of adventure soon comes to fruition as Bran, using Tyrion's saddle concept, is taken into the wolf's wood. We get to see the small folk bending the knee to Rob, and the reader can sense in his response that Rob has the makings of a natural and respected leader like his father. Theon Greyjoy is with them, and Bran observes that Rob seemed to admire Theon and enjoy his company. Yeah, so Theon is clearly important to Rob at this moment when, despite no POV, we can guess that Rob must have been feeling isolated, even wishing to Bran that he was older than eight at one point. It's here that Rob tells Bran of the problems in King's Landing, the death of Jory, who had been really close to the boys, it seems, as well as the injury to Ned's leg. The passage ends. Theon thinks I should call the banners, Rob said. Blood for blood. For once, Greyjoy did not smile. His lean, dark face had a hungry look to it, and black hair fell down across his eyes. Only the Lord can call the banners, Bran said as the snow drifted down around them. If your father dies, Theon said, Rob will be the Lord of Winterfell. He won't die, Bran screamed at him. Rob took his hand. He won't die, not father, he said calmly. Still, the honour of the North is in my hands now. When our Lord Father took his leave of us, he told me to be strong for you and for Rickon. I'm almost a man grown, Bran. And Theon ridicules Maester Lewin's counsel, calling him an old woman. But Rob, evidently far more of a born leader than Theon could ever hope to be, replies that he listens to everyone. And here we see Rob thinking for himself with genuine maturity, while Theon is providing juxtaposition. And Rob shows more important qualities in the passage with Bran and the wildlings and the Night's Watch deserters. We see him fight well, parrying every attack and not hesitating in opening up a wildling's face with his sword. So we get to see Rob as a warrior here. He also spares Osher. So we see some mercy from Rob, perhaps living up to his father's injunction that if you'd take a man's life, you owe it to him to look into his eyes and hear his final words. And if you cannot bear to do that, then perhaps the man does not deserve to die. 
Finally, we see Rob berate Theon after the latter shoots Stiv with an arrow to free Bran. This not only sets up an undercurrent of resentment between the pair, but again shows that Rob is becoming his own man, asserting himself like a leader. We think this scene really helped to develop Rob into a more mature role in the transition to Rob calling his banners. So next time we see Rob, he's done exactly that. With messages from both Ned and Kat warning of war, Rob has called the banners of House Stark for the first time since Greyjoy's Rebellion. When Ned hears this news in King's Landing, he is aghast, thinking of Rob as only a boy. However, Rob has changed, and we get from Bran that, quote, Rob seemed half a stranger to Bran now, transformed, a lord in truth, though he had not seen his 16th name day. Even their father's bannerman seemed to sense it. Many tried to test him, each in his own way. And we can see our honest observer Bran now marking the changes in Rob with a sense of permanence, the word transformed, assuring the reader that Rob's journey from boy to leader is complete, although admittedly there will always be something of the boy in that leader. The previous quote highlighted that as a young ruler, his subjects are now testing and trying Rob, each in his own way, no doubt to assess him and see if he is a Stark worthy of their respect. It's essential that Rob, just months after the training yard incident with Joffrey, with all the bannermen gathered, pass any tests by his subjects. The full passage gives us numerous anecdotes about such tests of Rob, and if you needed confirmation of the new Rob Stark as a leader, look no further. So before we move on to our next segment, fully covering the Northern Muster and March South, here is a reading of Rob the Lord with his Bannermen. Rob seemed half a stranger to Bran now, transformed, a lord in truth, though he had not yet seen his sixteenth name day. Even their father's Bannermen seemed to sense it. Many tried to test him, each in his own way. Roose Bolton and Robert Glover both demanded the honor of battle command, the first brusquely, the second with a smile and a jest. Stout, grey-haired Mage Mormont, dressed in mail like a man, told Rob bluntly that he was young enough to be her grandson and had no business giving her commands. But, as it happened, she had a granddaughter she would be willing to have him marry. Soft-spoken Lord Kerwin had actually brought his daughter with him, a plump, homely maid of thirty years who sat at her father's left hand and never lifted her eyes from her plate. Jovial Lord Hornwood had no daughters, but he did bring gifts, a horse one day, a haunch of venison the next, a silver-chased hunting horn the day after, and he asked nothing in return, nothing but a certain holdfast taken from his grandfather, and hunting rights north of a certain ridge, and leave to damn the white knife, if it pleased the lord. Rob answered each of them with cool courtesy, much as father might have, and somehow, he bent them to his will. And when Lord Umber, who was called the Great John by his men, and stood as tall as Hodor and twice as wide, threatened to take his forces home if he was placed behind the Hornwoods or the Kerwins in the order of march, Rob told him he was welcome to do so. 
And when we are done with the Lannisters, he promised, scratching Greywind behind the ear, we'll march back north, root you out of your keep, and hang you for an oathbreaker. Cursing, the great John flung a flagon of ale into the fire and bellowed that Rob was so green he must piss grass. When Hallis Mullen moved to restrain him, he knocked him to the floor, kicked over a table, and unsheathed the biggest, ugliest greatsword that Bran had ever seen. All along the benches, his sons and brothers and sworn swords leapt to their feet, grabbing for their steel. Yet Rob only said a quiet word, and in a snarl and the blink of an eye, Lord Umber was on his back his sword spinning on the floor three feet away, and his hand dripping blood where Grey Wind had bitten off two fingers. My lord father taught me that it was death to bear steel against your liege lord, Rob said. But doubtless you only meant to cut my meat. Bran's bowels went to water as the great John struggled to rise, sucking at the red stumps of fingers. But then, astonishingly, the huge man laughed. Your meat, he roared, is bloody tough! And somehow, after that, the great John became Rob's right hand, his staunchest champion, loudly telling all and sundry that the boy lord was a Stark after all, and they'd damn well better bend their knees if they didn't fancy having them chewed off. Okay, so Great John Umber there, underlining how Rob has very quickly, and successfully it would seem, earned the respect of his bannermen, who had been testing the chinks in his armour, so to speak. The passage illustrates the jump from boy to leader that we've been talking about quite a lot, and in this section we'll look at Rob's march south as he begins to take on the role of a military general. And we'll be looking at things like troop numbers and military tactics in our upcoming episode on the War of the Five Kings. So here we'll focus mostly on Rob's character development and personality. Okay, so let's start by looking back to the Calling of the Banners to establish how Rob arrived at this place, marching south on the King's Road with an army of Northmen at his back. When Ned saw Cat in King's Landing, convinced that Tyrion had tried to assassinate Bran and that Cersei had killed Jon Arryn, 
And it's part of Ned's great tragedy that he was wrong on both counts, misled by none other than Peter Baelish. He told her, Once you're home, send word to Helman Talhart and Galbert Glover under my seal. They are to raise a hundred bowmen each and fortify Moat Kalin. Two hundred determined archers can hold the neck against an army. Instruct Lord Manderley that he is to strengthen and repair all his defenses at White Harbor and see that they are well manned. And from this day on, I want a careful watch kept over Theon Greyjoy. If there is war, we shall have sore need of his father's fleet. So we can see what's going through Ned's mind now. The Lannisters are true adversaries and he's anticipating further troubles. He wants to strengthen defences at White Harbour and Moat Kaelin, places of great strategic importance, knowing that this secures the North against any potential invasion. Crucially, it puts the North on a war footing, although it's important to note that at this point, Ned's thoughts seem to be mainly about defence. Yeah, they do. And the message does eventually get back to Winterfell, although unexpectedly in the form of a message to Rob from Cat at the Eyrie. Cat's change of plans contributes to the acceleration of hostilities at a pace Ned never anticipated. And Rob soon receives another message from King's Landing, telling of Jory Cassell's death and Ned's injury. But it's the next letter from his sister Sansa that really decides the issue. It says... When the raven came, bearing a letter marked with father's own seal and written in Sansa's hand, the cruel truth seemed no less incredible. Bran would never forget the look on Rob's face as he stared at their sister's words. She says father conspired at treason with the king's brothers, he read. King Robert is dead, and mother and I are summoned to the Red Keep to swear fealty to Joffrey. And while Rob had debated calling the banners after hearing of Jory's death, The news of his father's arrest settled things. Far from capitulating to the Queen's demands, Rob would summon the northern host and march south to relieve his uncle Edmure, who was besieged at Riverrun. And there are a few points of interest in the narrative as the banners arrive. First of all, the first banners we see on page are the Karstarks, though they are the last to arrive. With thousands of troops arriving at Winterfell, George clearly picked carefully whom he wanted to introduce to us first. Rickard Karstuck is introduced and we learn of his stark blood, which will be very important later on. Although Bran thinks to himself, they did not look like Starks. And we also hear that in the Wintertown, quote, one of Lord Bolton's men knifed one of Lord Kerwin's. So a Bolton man knifing another northerner is definitely shades of the Red Wedding. And while we wouldn't quite call this foreshadowing along the lines of some of the more clear examples we'll see through the text, it's certainly laying the groundwork that the Boltons might be uneasy allies. And it's a detail that really stands out on a reread. And along similar lines, the only mention of Roose Bolton so far was Ned's tale of Roose wanting to cut the throat of the grievously wounded Barristan Selmy on the trident. George really never held back on the villainy of House Bolton, did he? No, it's a wonder the Starks ever put any faith in the Boltons at all. And in this same chapter, Rob confesses to Bran that Roose makes him nervous, saying... Lord Roos never says a word. 
He only looks at me, and all I can think is of that room they have at the Dreadfort, where the Boltons hang the skins of their enemies. Okay, so that's probably enough to give anyone nightmares. Anyway, the delicacy of dealing with the lords aside, Brand recounts the various banners, and we get a sense of scale of this gathering. Maester Lewin estimates the force to be 12,000 men, yet more will join on the journey south. It says, Rob must march soon or not at all. The winter town is full to bursting, and this army of his will eat the countryside clean if it camps here much longer. Others are waiting to join him all along the King's Road, Baronites and Cranagmen and the Lords Manderley and Flint. The fighting has begun in the Riverlands, and your brother has many leagues to go. So Lewin's words communicate the urgency of the situation, and the fact that war now seems inevitable. And Rob's outwardly calm and cool manner of dealing with his bannermen makes the Northern force begin to feel like a really cohesive unit, with Rob now ready to put his leadership to the test. And as Bran is aware of the risks to his father, with Rob heading to Riverrun with an army, you can bet Rob knew those risks too. Yet we get a glimpse into another of Rob's intentions, as he tells Bran, Mother will be home soon, and I'll bring back father, I promise. Yeah, and we've already pointed out Rob's optimism in difficult times, and it manifests in a feeling of courage and strong will rather than delusion. But if Rob was serious about rescuing his father, his plan at this stage seems to have been to pass through the neck, leave reinforcements as Ned had requested, and then march to relieve the siege of Riverrun, from where, strengthened by the Riverland's army, he might have hoped to take Tywin, encamped at the crossroads, in the rear, and perhaps bargain for Ned from that strong position. As the Great John later puts it to Cat, we'll shove our swords up Tywin Lannister's bunghole soon enough, begging your pardons, and then it's on to the Red Keep to free Ned. Yes. <laughs> Okay, and while the Great John insinuates the plan was to assault the Red Keep, to undertake a heroic rescue of their lord, we think this was likely typical hyperbole, and that Rob's plan would have been slightly more cautious, we think. Anyway, when Rob leaves Bran as the Stark in Winterfell, he doesn't imagine he and Rickon will be alone for very long, expecting his mother to be returning soon. However, the siege of her family home at Riverrun, her father's failing health, and Rob's need for an advisor all combine together to change Catelyn's priorities, and she ultimately decides to stay with her eldest son. Bran and Rickon's loss is the reader's gain, as Cat is now our observer of Rob, all the way to the end of his arc. And when Cat and Rob are reunited at Moat Kaelin, she immediately steps into the role of advisor, but in a very careful and restrained manner. In their first meeting, Rob confesses his fear that the Lannisters will kill Ned in retribution for him taking the field, and his uncertainty about being a leader. Here's the quote. Mother, what are we going to do? I brought this whole army together, 18,000 men, but I don't... I'm not certain... He looked at her, his eyes shining, the proud young lord melted away in an instant, and quick as that, he was a child again, a fifteen-year-old boy, looking to his mother for answers. 
So Kat is intently aware that Rob must appear strong and decisive to his vassals and lends him exactly the kind of guidance that allows him to arrive at solutions on his own. Regarding his fears about the Lannisters killing Ned, she explains, They want us to think so, but you have no choice. If you go to King's Landing and swear fealty, you will never be allowed to leave. If you turn your tail and retreat to Winterfell, your lords will lose all respect for you. Some may even go over to the Lannisters. Then the Queen, with that much less to fear, can do as she likes with her prisoners. Our best hope, our only true hope, is that you can defeat the foe in the field. If you should chance to take Lord Tywin or the Kingslayer captive, why then a trade might very well be possible, but that is not the heart of it. So long as you have the power enough that they must fear you, Ned and your sister should be safe. Cersei is wise enough to know that she may need them to make her peace, should the fighting go against her. And when Rob expresses his fear that the fighting might go against the Northmen, Cat reminds him of Rhaegar's slaughtered children, and it says, She saw the fear in his young eyes then, but there was a strength as well. Then I will not lose, he vowed. And this mixture of fear and courage really puts us in mind of Ned's first lesson to Bran about the nature of bravery. And when Rob brings her up to date on the situation in the Riverlands and tells her of his resolve to march south, it says, She was hearing the Lord's Bannermen speaking with her son's voice, she realized. Over the years, she had hosted many of them at Winterfell and been welcomed with Ned to their own hearths and tables. She knew what sorts of men they were, each one. She wondered if Rob did. And so she gently presses him on his intentions, and Rob reveals the competing suggestions of marching south to meet Tywin head-on, and of attempting to flank him to join up with the Riverlords against Jaime, which we think he favoured. But with her encouragement, Rob himself comes up with the plan to split his army, sending his foot to meet Tywin at the Green Fork while secretly leading his horse west to Riverrun. Splitting his army is a somewhat risky proposition, but it's a plan that would also split Jamie and Tywin, since Tywin, once lured that far north, would be unable to cross the river to relieve his son. Yeah, it was an excellent plan, though it was dependent upon the cooperation of Walder Frey, and with Kat's subtle help, Rob made the decision to give the command of the foot to Roose Bolton. It was the correct decision in the moment, we think. One Catelyn seems to think Ned would have approved, but it would have fateful implications in the end, as Bruce, whose disappointment that Cat no longer held Tyrion Lannister had already been made clear, from that point on would be removed from Rob, ostensibly operating according to orders, but in reality hedging his bets at every moment. As George himself put it, as for Bolton, if you reread all his sections carefully, I think you'll see a picture of a man keeping all his options open as long as he could, sniffing the wind, covering his tracks, ready to jump either way. Yeah, and speaking of laying groundwork for the Red Wedding, we noticed something very interesting about Rob's shield as he departed Winterfell. Bran described it as 
wood banded with iron, white and grey, and on it the snarling face of a direwolf. Significantly, Rob has chosen a wolf's head as his own standard, rather than the running wolf of the Stark Banners. And George explained that it was a personal choice as variants of heraldry were relatively common in the Middle Ages. But we found this to be a very interesting detail in light of the outcome of the Red Wedding and the association of Rob with the head of a direwolf in tales of his death and in Daenerys' House of the Undying vision. We've made note before of how early George was putting in hints of what was to come, and as always, we're in awe of the obvious forethought that went into planning Rob's arc. Yeah, George actually addressed his intentions with Rob in an interview about the Red Wedding a couple of years ago. When asked how far in advance he had planned the outcome, he said, I knew it almost from the beginning, not the first day, but very soon. I said in many interviews that I like my fiction to be unpredictable. I like there to be considerable suspense. I killed Ned in the first book and it shocked a lot of people. I killed Ned because everyone thinks he's the hero and that, sure, he's going to get into some trouble, but then he'll somehow get out of it. The next predictable thing is to think his eldest son is going to rise up and avenge his father. And everyone is going to expect that. So immediately, killing Rob became the next thing I had to do. On the other hand, only recently, George told fans that he regretted not making Rob a point of view character because it made his death predictable, which is almost certainly the hindsight of many years at work. But in any case, we'll continue to keep our eyes peeled for more hints and foreshadowings. So as the northern host begins to move out of the neck, we see that Brendan Blackfish Tully has been put in charge of the Outriders, with Rob himself riding at the head of the vanguard, taking it in turns to keep company with a different lord each day, a lesson he had clearly learned from his father, whom we had earlier learned from Arya had been accustomed to act in the same manner with his vassals. And in the meantime, we also learn, via Tyrion's point of view, that Tywin has learned of Rob's march south and has taken the bait, pulling up stakes from his encampment at the Trident and beginning his march north to meet Rob, of whom he says, No sword is strong until it's been tempered. The Stark boy is a child. No doubt he likes the sound of war horns well enough and the sight of his banners fluttering in the wind. But in the end, it comes down to butcher's work. I doubt he has the stomach for it. Yeah, from the sounds of that, Tywin is confusing Rob with his own grandson, Joffrey. And it is interesting how Tywin's words actually hint at the boy-to-man theme that we've been discussing here. And of course, time would tell the truth of his expectations. But now, with Tywin marching north to meet them, the fate of the campaign was in the hands of Walter Frey, the Lord of the Crossing. Frey had assembled a force of 4,000 men and, in spite of Edmure calling the banners of the Riverlands to his own aid, had kept them and camped outside his castle on the banks of the Green Fork. As they approached, Catelyn's knowledge of Lord Frey became invaluable to Rob as she schooled him on the history of House Frey and Lord Walder in particular. 
Lord Walder, she assures him, knows the value of his crossing and will be hedging his bets to make sure he comes out on the winning side. This is an interesting observation in light of what we just said about Roos Bolton also hedging his bets. While Roos and Walder on the surface couldn't seem any more different, this desire they share to be on the winning side at any cost would, of course, lead to one of the more despicable alliances of A Song of Ice and Fire. And all the while the host is marching south, and there is debate over Lord Walder's intentions and how to deal with him. Rob asks Cat, what would my Lord Father do? And she replies, find a way across, whatever it took. The next day, the Blackfish brings word of Edmure's defeat and capture. Jamie's siege beneath the walls of Riverrun, and that Walder Frey has withdrawn his entire force inside the Twins and barred his gates. Well, Rob's reaction, threatening to pull the twins down around his ears, is somewhat childish and reminiscent of his reaction to hearing of Lannister involvement in Bran's fall back at Winterfell, further highlighting the boy-to-man theme and earning him the reproach of his mother, who urges him to see things from a more diplomatic point of view. To his credit, Rob listens to what she has to say. The Freys have held the crossing for 600 years, and for 600 years they have never failed to exact their toll. What toll? What does he want? She smiled. That is what we must discover. And what if I do not choose to pay this toll? Then you had best retreat back to Moat Caelan, deploy to meet Lord Tywin in battle, or grow wings. I see no other choice. Yes, so Rob seems to be between a rock and a hard place there, and while Cat's leaves him to consider his options. They arrive at the Twins to be greeted by a party of Freys who invite Rob to share meat and mead with their father. The obvious alarm this invitation is greeted with by his bannerman speaks volumes about the low esteem someone like Lord Walder commanded. So does identifying his offspring as all looking like weasels for that matter. But it's Kat who takes the initiative here and offers to go in Rob's place. Yeah, and Kat's interview with Lord Walder is in turns frustrating and insulting, amusing and painfully transparent. Lord Walder has a chip on his shoulder as big as Casterly Rock, and once Catelyn understands his position, she finds it relatively straightforward to bargain with him. While in the end, Lord Walder drives a hard bargain fostering for two of his grandsons, a position as Rob's squire and a knighthood for one of his younger sons, and marriage alliances with both Arya and Rob. She gains the crossing, if only Rob will agree. And to his credit, at this stage, he does. When she tells him of the agreement, he asks, Can I refuse? Not if you wish to cross, she tells him. And when he consents to pay the toll Lord Walder has demanded, his mother thinks he had never seemed more manly to her than he did in that moment. Boys might play with swords, but it took a lord to make a marriage pact, knowing what it meant. So Rob has really grown into his position of leadership in these weeks since calling the banners and marching south. Tywin's assessment of him is about to get a hard reality check, For that very night, Rob brought nine-tenths of their horse, 
about 4,000 men across the Green Fork to race across country and relieve his kin at River Run, leaving a small force under Helmut Allhart to reinforce Lord Walter's garrison and the larger part of his army under the command of Roose Bolton as a decoy to continue drawing Lord Tywin up the King's Road. Yeah, as Catelyn thinks, for good or ill, her son had thrown the dice. And the next time we see Cat and Rob is on the brink of the Battle of Whispering Wood. And we see further evidence of Rob truly inhabiting his leadership role when Cat observes his personal guard and that many of the young Northmen had, quote, clamoured for the honour of riding with the young wolf as they had taken to calling him. So, Rob is the Young Wolf now, a title highly reminiscent of the Young Dragon, the name given to Daron the First Targaryen, who famously marched south and conquered Dorne at the age of 14. That the Young Dragon was also famously killed a few years later while meeting with the Dornish under a peace banner in a violation of protocol that is startlingly similar to Rob's end is a fascinating historical parallel that while it was revealed ex post facto, probably deserves a place along with the numerous hints and foreshadowings George gave to Rob's fate starting in A Game of Thrones. We also find it interesting that the young dragon is mentioned a couple of times in John's point of view. Once he thinks that Daron I had been one of his heroes growing up, but he later recalls playing at swords with Rob. They were not little boys when they fought, but knights and mighty heroes. I am Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, John would call out, and Rob would shout back, Well, I am Florian the Fool. Or Rob would say, I am the Young Dragon. And John would reply, I am Sir Ryan Redwine. So, John as Aemon the Dragon Knight, Daron's cousin in Kingsguard, who survived the treachery in Dorne and went on to serve under three more Targaryen kings, and Rob as the Young Dragon. An interesting comparison, we think, especially if John turns out to be Rob's cousin rather than his brother, and even more so if, as we discussed in our John episode, John's Targaryen name happens to be Aemon. Yes, some nice crackpot. We did offer a few reasons as to why that could be the case. And anyway, getting back to Kat, as she watches her son prepare for battle, the passage brings to mind a strong reminder of Shakespeare's Henry V, who walked among his men the night before the great battle of Agincourt. If Rob was frightened, he gave no sign of it. Catelyn watched her son as he moved among the men, touching one on the shoulder, sharing a jest with another, helping a third to gentle an anxious horse. Yeah, unlike Henry, Rob isn't incognito, but nonetheless, this behaviour is the mark of a true leader, and Rob is following his father's lesson here. Know the men who follow you, and let them know you. Don't ask your men to die for a stranger. And when he dons his helm, he turns to his mother and says, I must ride down the line, mother. Father says you should let the men see you before a battle. She tells him to go, and as if to convince himself, he replies, it will give them courage. So Rob is truly showing all the best of Ned Stark's lessons here early on, trying so hard to be a man and a lord in truth on the eve of his first battle. 
We've shown him taking command of battle plans with his uncle Brynden Tully, and his plans are actually spot on. The enemy falls into their trap, and when the battle is over, Rob returns to his mother's side victorious, followed by a group of men leading the captive, Jamie Lannister. And certainly, taking such a valuable captive must have seemed to both Rob and Kat to be an ace in the hole. It was exactly what they had discussed earlier as being a goal by which they hoped to achieve Ned's release. And it certainly would have worked had the unthinkable not happened in the meantime. Fate intervened in the form of Joffrey Baratheon, ironically the son of the man Rob now held captive. Ned was executed on the steps of the Sept of Baelor, and all hope of a negotiated peace between Stark and Lannister seemed to be snuffed out in an instant. Yet Tyrion remarked on the situation at his father's war council just days later, when hearing the reports of the Stark victories at Whispering Wood and the Battle of the Camps. Peace? Tyrion swelled his wine thoughtfully, took a deep draught and hurled his empty cup to the floor, where it shattered into a thousand pieces. There's your peace, Sir Harris. My sweet nephew broke it for good and all when he decided to ornament the Red Keep with Lord Eddard's head. You'll have an easier time drinking wine from that cup than you will convincing Rob Stark to make peace now. He's winning. Or hadn't you noticed? And that's the state of affairs when Rob and Kat arrive at Riverrun after lifting the siege and freeing Edmure from his captivity. And while Catelyn's immediate concern is for her dying father, Rob is focused on the news of the realm and the need to hold a war council. Word had arrived that Renly Baratheon had claimed his brother's crown and that he was marshalling the forces of the Stormlands and the Reach in the south. With all the river lords that could be summoned in attendance with Rob, Edmure, and those northern lords who had accompanied Rob from the twins, Cat describes the war council that went on into the night. And when the arguing coalesced into two opposing views on the matter of Renly's claim, Rob spoke, and it says, It was the first time her son had spoken. Like his father, he knew how to listen. So, showing himself still to be a thoughtful and collected leader, just like his father, Rob declared that Renly's claim was not valid. As Ned had told Renly himself, there were others that came before him by the law of the land, and that it went against that law for him to proclaim himself. And when Rob admits that he's unsure of which claim is legitimate, that of Joffrey, who executed Ned, but is the eldest son of the last king, or Stannis, Robert's eldest brother, Catelyn steps into the breach and makes a passionate plea for peace. The Lannisters still hold her daughters, and she speaks of the futility of vengeance and the hope of preserving innocent lives and avoiding endless warfare. Yeah, it's a speech that ends with a moment of silence, an almost possibility. But then the arguing starts again, and Kat realises that the cause is lost, that it will be war. And as she despairs for her daughter's lives, Great John Umber takes the stage and makes the declaration that would change the course of Rob Stark's arc forever. 
Declaring he would have no more of these southern kings, he laid his sword at Rob's feet and declared him king in the north. It's an absolutely iconic moment in this story. So we've prepared a reading of the entire scene before we head into our next segment, which will be a broad ranging consideration of the history of the North. How Stark and Winterfell, along with numerous speculations provoked by the details of that history. My Lords, here is what I say to these two kings. Renly Baratheon is nothing to me, nor Stannis neither. Why should they rule over me and mine from some flowery seat in Highgarden or Dawn? What do they know of the wall, or the wolf's woods, or the barrows of the first men? Even their gods are wrong. The others take the Lannisters too. I've had a belly full of them. Why shouldn't we rule ourselves again? It was the dragons we married, and the dragons are all dead. There sits the only king I mean to bow my knee to, my lords. The king in the north. And he knelt and laid his sword at Rob's feet. I'll have peace on those terms. They can keep their red castle and their iron chair as well. The king in the north. Karstark eased his longsword from its scabbard, kneeling beside the great John. Mage Mormont stood. The king of winter, she declared, and laid her spiked mace beside the swords. And the river lords were rising too, Blackwood and Bracken and Malister, houses who had never been ruled from Winterfell, yet Catelyn watched them rise and draw their blades, bending their knees and shouting the old words that had not been heard in the realm for more than three hundred years since Aegon the Dragon had come to make the Seven Kingdoms one, yet now were heard again, ringing from the timbers of her father's hall. The, the King of the North! The King of the North! The King of the North! Okay, so right there, near the end of A Game of Thrones, Rob is declared King in the North. As his mother says, words that had not been heard in the realm for more than 300 years since Aegon the Dragon had come to make the Seven Kingdoms one. And now we're going to take some time to review what we know of the history of the kings in the north and Winterfell. We'll also take this opportunity to explore some ideas we haven't been able to touch upon elsewhere, which may take a somewhat meandering course and at times seem only tangentially related to Rob, but we'll endeavor to show how Rob's family home and history may have an important impact on the plot going forward. And since we did talk briefly about the history of House Stark in our Ned episode, we'll try not to be too repetitive, but the revival of this ancient title for Rob in A Game of Thrones is just too important to pass over. So the World Book gives us the history of Westeros from the Dawn Age and the arrival of the First Men through the Age of Heroes, the Long Night and the arrival of the Andals, the Ryanar and the Valyrian Conquerors. It also gives a brief history of each of the Seven Kingdoms 
And it's there we learn much and more of the history of the North, House Stark and the Kings in the North. Well, for starters, we learn the North is considered the oldest of the Seven Kingdoms, as it survived the longest unconquered. The people of the North are descended from the first men of Westeros, with very little mingling with later arrivals like the Andals, who mostly overwhelmed the areas to the South. As we've mentioned elsewhere, this is in large part a matter of geography. Moat Kalin provides a remarkably effective land defense in the south, while the stony shores and general sparsity of landfall have kept sea invaders at bay, with a few notable exceptions. Yeah, the Ironborn have harried the west coast of the north for many generations. While to the east, there were periodic thrusts by Andals, and even at one point slavers from the steppe zones at White Harbour. But always the first men were able to throw them back. And so the men of House Stark were able, over centuries, to consolidate the hold of their house over the north, as the so-called Kings of Winter subdued the Barrow Kings, the Red Kings of the Dreadfort, the Marsh Kings, the Mountain Clans, the Stoneborn of Skagos, and numerous other small lords and petty kings, possibly even including the Blackwoods of Raventree, who records indicate once ruled over the Wolfswood. And according to legend, the Starks even drove out the giants in the north and a skin changer named Gavin Greywolf and his kin, while chronicles found at the Night Fort tell of the Starks' war with the warg king of Sea Dragon Point and his, quote, inhuman allies, the children of the forest. This is an interesting point because we're told that when the warg king's last redoubt fell, his sons were put to the sword along with his beasts and green seers, whilst his daughters were taken as prizes by their conquerors. So a seemingly minor detail, but one that stands out if you've ever wondered just where the Stark children in A Song of Ice and Fire might have come by their mysterious connections to their direwolves. Historical Starks once married the daughters of a conquered foe known as the Warg King, who was allied with the children of the forest. And speaking of the children, they're mentioned again in the World Book in relation to another community, the Cranagman of the Neck. It says, Some say they are small in stature because they intermarried with the children of the forest, but more likely it results from inadequate nourishment. It goes on to say that they were rumoured to speak with animals, quote, as the children are said to have done. And since we think the World Book is in part a clever vehicle for relaying important information about backstory, we wonder about the suggested intermarriage with the children of the forest. Because then we learn that the Cranach men's conquered ruler, the last Marsh King, gave his daughter in marriage to King Rickard Stark, known as the Laughing Wolf. So, within a few short pages, the World Book gives us not one, but two examples of Starks marrying women from families with connections to the children of the forest, who were rumored to have curious relationships with animals, as wargs or green seers, which are abilities that appear to be linked to each other and to the children. And we can't help but wonder if it was these marriages that may have contributed to the present-day Stark's warging abilities. In fact, this is what we'd put our money on. 
While fans had long speculated about connections with the Children of the Forest, in the World Book we seem to have been given actual evidence of this being at least a possibility. In any case, the larger picture is that in time House Stark claimed dominion over all the lands north of the Neck and south of the Wall, eventually becoming known as the Kings in the North. The Well Book tells us that Stark rule over at least parts of the North has persisted for 8,000 years. And the origins of that rule are traced back to the Age of Heroes and the legendary founder of House Stark, Brandon the Builder, himself a reputed descendant of the legendary High King of the First Men, Garth Greenhand. Brandon the Builder may have played a role in the ending of The Long Night, and is reputed to have built the Stark stronghold at Winterfell after that time, as well as the Wall. That's right, the Wall was raised in the aftermath of the Long Night by the First Men, with the aid of the Children of the Forest and the Giants, if legends are true, to keep the others from the realms of men. While the World Book expresses some level of doubt about both the magical or legendary components in the building of the 700-foot-tall Wall of Ice, as well as in the reasons for its construction, we can look to other sources in the main story for support. Yeah, and none of these provide better material than Old Nan, whose childhood tales intersect not only with some of the stories related and then discounted by the author of the World Book, but also with other sources like the Annals of the Night's Watch and Wildland Culture. We have an episode all about the Long Night, so we won't be going into the details here, but suffice it to say that the tales all seem to indicate some involvement by House Stark, personified by the character of Brandon the Builder. Yeah, and as we said, Brandon was said to have built the wall and to have given the Night's Watch a gift of land known as Brandon's Gift. And while the maesters of the Citadel wonder if the gift was made by a different Brandon, and even George has said, no one can even say for certain if Brandon the Builder ever lived. He is as remote from the time of the novels as Noah and Gilgamesh are from our own time. So we think the key fact here is that House Stark has roots as ancient as any house in Westeros and that the Kings of Winter apparently endured for thousands of years since their possible involvement in the ending of The Long Night. So, it was the descendants of Brandon the Builder who consolidated Stark control over the North, including engaging in a millennia-long struggle with House Bolton, known at the time as the Red Kings of the Dreadfort. The World Book indicates that, quote, the enmity between the Starks and the Boltons went back to the Long Night itself, and that the Starks weren't always victorious in their wars with the Dreadfort. No, we're told that King Royce II and his descendant, Royce IV, both captured and burned Winterfell. At the same time, quote, other Red Kings were reputed to wear cloaks made from the skins of Stark princes they had captured and flayed. And Rob actually may have alluded to this practice indirectly when he confessed to Bran in A Game of Thrones that Lord Roos made him nervous, 
He never says a word. He only looks at me. And all I can think of is that room they have in the Dreadfort where the Boltons hang the skins of their enemies. Well, yes, it is made clear that Roos made Rob uncomfortable, and no wonder, with his pale, expressionless eyes and cold, impassive manner, he sounds like some kind of sociopath. And that's before even knowing what he's capable of. But the Starks had their victories over the Boltons as well. In A Dance with Dragons, John tells Stannis, House Bolton rose up against the King in the North, and Harlan Stark laid siege to the Dreadfort. It took him two years to starve them out. And while it's unclear exactly when and which Stark King had the final victory, the World Book tells us, in the end, even the Dreadfort fell before the might of Winterfell, and the last Red King, known to history as Rogar the Huntsman, swore fealty to the King of Winter and sent his sons to Winterfell as hostages, even as the first Andals were crossing the narrow sea in their longships. So, the Boltons have been subject to the Starks since prior to the Andal invasions, and we've always found it interesting that of all the victories of this sort that are noted for the Starks, this is the only one not explicitly mentioned to have included a dynastic marriage. So of all the major houses in the North, we think it's notable that there's no record of a Bolton-Stark marriage in any of the histories or genealogies we have. Yeah, that's a very strange detail, isn't it? And we know that Ned never trusted Roos, although not for any specific reason that we're told, but we think it's likely that the Boltons have always been uneasy subjects. On the other hand, it's highly encouraging that in spite of not one but two sacks by House Bolton in its history, Winterfell and House Stark seem to have endured, growing stronger following each defeat if their eventual dominion over the entire North is anything to go by. Okay, and speaking of Winterfell, we mentioned that it was built by Brandon the Builder, but it's very hard to nail down when that actually happened. Various histories place its origins anywhere from the Dawn Age to the time following the end of the Long Night, but as that represents a potential 2,000-year span, we have to fall back upon George's statement about the legendary nature of Bran the Builder and admit that we can't really be sure he ever existed, much less that he accomplished all the feats of building with which he's been credited, from the Wall to Winterfell to Storm's End. Yeah, what we can do is describe the ancient nature of the castle itself. Sacked twice by the Boltons prior to Andal times, as we mentioned, the 100-foot-high inner walls are estimated to be a mere 2,000 years old. Inside this fortification sprawl numerous buildings, including the first keep, quote, squat and round, covered with weather-worn gargoyles and reputed to be the oldest structure in the castle. While the World Book makes a claim that round towers could not have existed prior to the Andal invasion, as the early Andals raised square towers and only later progressed to round, this seems to be a bit out of place considering that Storm's End, also reputed to be built by Bran the Builder and most certainly predating the Andal arrival, features a very prominent round drum tower. 
Yeah, so we think trying to limit the earliest date of construction by this analysis would probably be a mistake, and we'll stick with the World Book's observation that the architecture of Winterfell is an amalgam of many different eras, which seems to be demonstrably true no matter when the structures originated. And it seems to be a matter of record that the 80-foot-tall outer wall of the castle was built near the end of the reign of King Edric Snowbeard. It's implied that there may have been a heightened need for defense as Edric's century-long reign neared its end, and the outer wall certainly provided that. Yeah, the double ring would have been enormously effective in a siege or attack, as any attacker who succeeded in making it past the first defense would still have to contend with the moat and the defenders on the inner wall towering above them. Inside, Winterfell boasts an ancient godswood warmed by the hot springs, which are also used to warm the very walls of the castle itself, as Sansa explains to Peter Baelish in A Storm of Swords. Water from the hot springs is piped through the walls to warm them. Yeah, and the World Book points out the value those hot springs would have had for early settlers as both a source of water and warmth. And it's those very springs running beneath the foundations of Winterfell that have inspired some fascinating tales about the castle connecting it with dragons. It's noted that the fires that heat the springs are the same as those that heat Dragonstone and were responsible for the 14 flames of Valyria, but the small folk of Winterfell have been known to claim that there is a sleeping dragon beneath the castle warming the waters with its breath. Yes, a sleeping dragon. What do you think of that? Well, perhaps that claim can be dismissed. Maybe the one that, that comes right before it should actually be considered taking into account this kind of pattern of the world book repeating stories that may have actual factual bases and then dismissing them. And in this case, the plausible claim is Mushroom's testimony that, quote, the dragon Vermax left a clutch of eggs somewhere in the depths of Winterfell's crypts, where the waters of the hot springs run close to the walls, while his rider treated with Cregan Stark at the start of the Dance of the Dragons. Okay, so Yandel dismisses this, not because Vermax wasn't at Winterfell, but because of Gildane's belief that Vermax was male, asserting that a maester called Anson had refuted Barth's belief that dragons could change sex at need. But Maester Aemon himself a highly educated scholar and a Targaryen, told Sam in A Feast for Crows, Dragons are neither male nor female. Barth saw the truth of that, but now one and now the other, as changeable as flame. Yes, so who do you trust more? Septon Barth and Maester Aemon or Gildane and Yandel? Again, we wonder if this is a little tidbit strategically placed to pair with something from the main series and provide perhaps some important backstory. What the purpose of that could be is obviously up for debate and has spawned more than a few crackpot theories. We mention it because should it become relevant in the future, we expect it to be in tandem with another significant development in the current timeline. And that is the renaissance of the title King in the North 
at this very key time as Westeros could be facing a new long night. Yeah, if Jon Snow turns out to be both a Targaryen and Rob's heir, and he has a role to play in the coming war with the others, then the revival of an ancient title and the possible presence of dragon eggs in the Winterfell crypts could be very interesting indeed. And speaking of the crypts and Jon, we actually see quite a bit of them through his point of view, as he has recurring dreams of being in the crypts. Yeah, and in most of them, he's aware of a sense of not belonging, and the ancient kings of winter seem to be aware of him. The idea that Jon is uncomfortable in the crypts because he's secretly a Targaryen certainly isn't a new one in the fandom. But if we tilt the perspective just a bit, we might wonder if there's something in the crypts that's drawing him there because he's a Targaryen. Yeah, if there is a hidden dragon egg or eggs in the crypts, imagine the irritation that might cause with the spirits of the ancient kings of winter. But also imagine the pull they might exert on someone who has Targaryen blood. We saw with Danny what a strange influence the eggs seem to have upon her, and we don't think it ventures too far into crackpot territory to suggest that something similar might happen with John, with hidden eggs finding their way into his dreams, almost like proto-dragon dreams. Well, that's a whole bunch of ifs, but we do like to consider these kind of possibilities, and we think and hope that you listeners do enjoy to listen to crackpots now and again. Anyway, while we're on the subject of speculation and things that might be hidden in the crypts, other fans have wondered if there could be some kind of object or objects hidden in Lyanna's tomb. They point to the fact that Ned apparently broke with tradition by giving Lyanna her own tomb, and so some fans wonder if he did so in order to conceal some important artefact. Yeah, and this could be some other plausible explanation for what it is that's drawing Jon Snow down to the tombs. But many fans have wondered if Lyanna could be entombed in something like a Targaryen wedding cloak. And over at Reddit, Redditor Cantu speculated about Rhaegar's harp. We like that idea, but have actually posited a trio of items, as is seen in real life with royal regalia. Crown, scepter, and sword are traditional, but a sword doesn't really fit well with Rhaegar, since he doesn't really seem to have an ancestral sword to give. The harp, though, if Rhaegar had left it behind at the Tower of Joy, works very well as a substitute. Yes, yeah, so well done to Cantus for that thought. Okay, and for the second object speculation, uh, there's been focus on a dragon's egg, especially given the evidence of cradle eggs from Duncan Egg. An egg standing in for the scepter is especially tantalising when you consider that the scepter, or wand, is a symbol of sovereignty that at one time was associated with magic. And which particular magic are the Targaryens connected with? Yes, it's always dragons. And unlike the other objects, which might prove some kind of love between Rhaegar and Lyanna, an egg, if it were in the nature of a cradle egg, would be specifically for Jon. Having it there could point to a Targ baby being involved with those two. 
Well, for clarity's sake, let's point out that this idea actually predates the suggestion that Vermax left a cache of eggs behind at Winterfell, but we think that in either case, it's a fascinating possibility that just might be hinted at in those dreams John has. Now, for the final piece in the regalia theory, the crown. The key to the crown idea is that it would be Torrin Stark's iron and bronze crown, which was surrendered to Aegon the Conqueror, and as Catelyn rather pointedly thinks in A Clash of Kings, what Aegon had done with it, no man could say. Yeah, I remember this crown idea coming from the Westeros forums a few years back when we used to be active posters there. We know that Rhaegar was a kind of researcher of sorts, and we can speculate that he spent a lot lot of time going through old manuscripts and troves in his youth. The theory is that he discovered the crown and returned it to Lyanna, a symbol that he was returning sovereignty to the Starks, maybe, or something like that, but most definitely an object that screams Stark, yet could have only come from an admiring Targ. That's definitely an interesting idea that ties together a few little details from the text. And now the final piece of this regalia idea relates to my being a fan of all things Arthurian. The speculative group of objects actually completes a trio of associations with Wales and King Arthur. The dragon and crown both appear on arms generally attributed to King Arthur, while both dragon and harp are closely associated with Wales and with the bardic tradition, and early Britons named the constellation Lyra Arthur's harp. Yeah, and since Lady Gwynne has argued that John is an Arthurian figure, not the only one in A Song of Ice and Fire, mind you, These connections really sealed the deal on how symbolically fantastic this particular trio would be. Of course, in and of themselves, none of these objects actually prove anything about John or his heritage outright. But as symbols, they could go some or even a long way towards corroborating information that might come from alternate sources. So we're looking at several streams of information coming together. Yeah, that's right. And that really might be as far as confirmation or corroboration we ever get in the story. But you might be wondering how all of this relates to Rob. Well, if John is an Arthurian figure, Rob's story contains a lot of elements found in the tale of Bran the Blessed from the Welsh mythologies. Bran is intertwined with Arthur in the sense that both are legendary kings of Britain whose legends overlap to a degree and both end on a somewhat messianic note. Bran the Blessed's story includes a betrayal at a feast while away from home that sounds very much like the Red Wedding, and his severed head was reputed to have the power to protect Britain from invasion, while Arthur was a hero who died following a betrayal by his men, but was expected to come again at Britain's hour of need. Yeah, and while Rob's remains may never be placed in the Winterfell crypts, Remember, we've said that the revival of the title, King in the North, could prove highly significant with the upcoming threat from beyond the wall, while Rob's eventual choice of Jon Snow as his heir may be one of the wheels that move Jon's story towards his destiny, 
perhaps as the one who is reborn to save Westeros in its hour of need. That is a possibility. We also mentioned a kind of yin and yang connection between Rob and John earlier, and we think it's important to consider the two of them together in a lot of big picture ways. Okay, so now keeping with the general discussion of the crypts, we get detailed descriptions of them from John in his dreams, from Theon in A Dance with Dragons, and from Bran in Game of Thrones and in Clash of Kings. And from those descriptions, we know that the dead of House Stark are represented there in long rows of stone figures with, quote, great stone direwolves curled round their feet, and that an iron longsword had been laid across the lap of each who had been Lord of Winterfell. And we're going to continue in the realm of speculation for just another moment to consider what those details mean. First of all, the dead kings and lords of Winterfell are each pictured in death with a stone direwolf at his feet. We've wondered how this tradition came to be, and going back to our comment earlier about the legendary Starks intermarrying with families who had known or rumoured connections with the children of the forest and possible links to skin changing. It occurs to us that these direwolves could be meant to represent the animal familiars of the early Starks. That is to say, at some point in Stark history, it may have been a tradition for the Lord to bond with a direwolf, just as we're seeing now with the six Stark children in A Song of Ice and Fire, and quite similar to what we see with Targaryens and their dragons. Yeah, so the crypt statues could be a hint that what we see in the present is yet another revival of something from the past, which is becoming quite a theme in this segment. And their iron swords are another very interesting feature. Old Nan told the Stark children about the Others, their cold things, dead things, that hated iron and fire and the touch of the sun and every creature with hot blood in its veins. While Ned's point of view tells us that the iron swords are meant to, quote, keep the vengeful spirits in their crypts. But we wonder if old Nan may have been closer to the truth, and if the iron swords did indeed symbolise keeping the dead at bay, but perhaps more in a sense of the duty of the ancient kings of winter to protect people from the walking dead. Of course, the swords may have played double time to do exactly what Ned thinks, that is, keeping the dead Starks from joining the ranks of those dead who walk. Yeah, so the sword's kind of having a twofold purpose there. At any rate, iron seems to be highly symbolic to those kings of winter, as Cat thinks bronze and iron were the metals of winter, dark and strong to fight against the cold. And of course, she's thinking there of Rob's crown and the historic crown of the kings in the north surrendered to Aegon the Conqueror all those years ago. She describes it, and Rob's replica, as an open circlet of hammered bronze incised with the runes of the first men surmounted by nine black iron spikes wrought in the shape of longswords. And while we have definite ideas about what iron swords might signify, as we just discussed, we and others have wondered for a long time what the number nine might mean 
on the crown. Ideas range from symbolising conquests of old, as the Starks consolidated their hold upon the North, to nine being a number that was somehow significant to the first men. If it's the former, then we'd also add there's a neat almost correlation there to the Iron Throne of the Targaryens. Yeah, and is it possible the Starks had their own symbolic collection of iron swords? Well, obviously a crown and a throne are different objects, and the swords worn on the crown would be merely symbols, while the ones in the Iron Throne are the real thing. But both are potent symbols of kingship and conquest, and this interpretation might add a new layer to some Stark Targaryen analogs that we've been picking up on. And all of this brings us back to Rob, newly crowned king in the north with a crown of bronze and iron, the second son of Winterfell off fighting war in the south in as many generations. As Kat would think when observing her son in her first POV chapter in Clash, her son's crown was fresh from the forge and it seemed to Catelyn Stark that the weight of it pressed heavy on Rob's head. Extremely prescient words, we think, as we'll see when we continue Rob's story in our next episode. The ancient crown of the Kings of Winter had been lost three centuries ago, yielded up to Aegon the Conqueror when Torrin Stark knelt in submission. What Aegon had done with it, no man could say. Rob's crown looked much as the other was said to have looked in the tales told of the Stark Kings of old an open circlet of hammered bronze incised with the runes of the first men, surmounted by nine black iron spikes wrought in the shape of longswords. Of gold and silver and gemstones it had none. Bronze and iron were the metals of winter, dark and strong to fight against the cold. So, in this episode, we've considered Rob's background and his relationship with his family members. We've also looked at his growth arc, moving from boy to man in such a very short time, and his journey south up until his crowning at Riverrun soon after his father's death. We took a meandering walk through some northern history and lore, and we really hope that you enjoyed some of what we had to say there. And we've had so much to say about Rob that we've filled an entire episode and really only gone through about half of his arc. So we'll be leaving his time in the Riverlands as King in the North and the events of his reign up until his end in Storm until part two, our next episode. That's right, and we'll be back with that episode soon. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed this look at Rob Stark and our little foray into the history and lore of the North. When we return, we'll take the story right up through the Red Wedding and then take another diversion to consider Rob's legacy in the books and the multitude of theories that have arisen in the fandom about him. And as usual, now it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks, as always, to George R. R. Martin for making even the non-point-of-view characters so deep and textured, and to Kevin MacLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And as usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels. So, thanks to Vasily, Fatima, Alexis, Amber, Jessica, Kurt, Joe, 
Chris K, June, John H, Adam, Melitza, Cinder of the Citadel, Monica, Joy B, Ben H, Jax Cato, Corliss Valerian, Mary H of House Stark, Marja the Mage, Lady of the Frostfangs, Rusted Revolver, William James, The Red Woman, and Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And thanks as well to Jim McGeehan of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, Princess Zandako of the Summer Isles, Chris V, David Dampshorts of the Farallon Islands, Direwolf, Enzonio, Greg, James B, Curveball, Mossman, Jeff Gnarly the Longsnapper, Septa Smashley, Brendan Beefish of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, J.M., John of House Dane, Liz, Marilyn, Rebecca, Steve, A.J., Arion, The Working Dead, Zainab, Ash E., Rebecca Q., Jean A., Megan E., George, Yvonne, Mama J., Mother to Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Ones, Fabian Flowers, The Bastard of Green Shield, Zakari Sand, Black-Eyed Lily, Mano, Rachel, Liana the Little Bear, Felix, Brian, and Lord Commander Daenerys Flint. As always, let us know if I pronounced any of your names wrong, or if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all of our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate, and comment on our content there. Or find us on YouTube, and of course you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with Part 2 of our analysis of Rob Stark. Bye for now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.